Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. Sestrify is the agile SaaS procurement solution for progressive tech companies. Value proposition is reducing your SaaS spend and save time to let you focus on the essentials. Sestrify's SaaS experts negotiate with SaaS vendors such as Google, Miro, Asana, Salesforce or others the best conditions for existing contracts as well as for upcoming renewals. My company OMR is a customer of Sestrify and saves us many hours of work and reduces the SAS spend significantly, for instance. Other large customers to mention are Gorillas, Rantastic, West Wing or Emma. Sestrify's promise is they save you more money than they cost. Special offer, which is only valid until the end of the year, is a 50% discount for the first three months and you can claim it on sastrify.com slash alphalist. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby, and today with me is Chad Fowler. And Chad Fowler is a musician, used to be the CTO of Six Wunderkinder, the company uh, behind Wunderlist, used to work as at Microsoft, and is now general manager at Blue Yard Capital. And uh, from my perspective, he's really like a crazy bird. He is one of my early Ruby heroes, so he, he has written several books uh, about Ruby. He wrote a book. Uh, that is called My Job Went to India. He's uh, ho hopefully uh, telling us about today as well. And um, in a way, he's he's like a, a jack of all trades. So he knows everything <laughs> and he's, he's he seems to be good in everything. Uh, and we, we want to talk about that and, and about leadership today. Chad, welcome. Thank you. Let's let's start with your, your early nerd path. So how did you get into that, the whole thing? Oh, uh, so I was a saxophonist and a composer of modern classical music. Not that, not that it's actually called classical. Uh, and I was playing music for a living. Uh, and I got a computer. It was in like 1992. And it had Doom on it. Doom 2, I think. The id Software game. Maybe it was Doom, but, you know, one of them. And I started playing it, and then I learned you could play multiplayer, which was a new thing. Uh, and I got on a local BBS system and found someone to play with. And once I played Doom Deathmatch for the first time, I was hooked, and I, I realized that I needed to understand how computers work, and that was what I was going to do with myself. Um, so I, I, I would, yeah, go ahead. I, I could connect you to John Romero. He was actually on the podcast once. Um, maybe oh, cool. he wants, wants, wants to play a round of deathmatch. Still, <laughs> yeah, I could and, show him my Doom tattoo that I have. The God <laughs> <Avatar>. Crazy. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, I, yeah, I I wanted to learn how it worked because I thought that like especially one on one deathmatch was just such a beautiful thing. It was an amazing uh, 
scenario where they could create this digital environment inside of which you had so much freedom and flexibility and ability to to be creative. And I was just so fascinated by that that I started learning programming. So I would go play my you know blues band gigs at night and bring these big thick computer books with me as that was what you had to buy back then, these big thick heavy things, carry them out there and then uh, on the breaks between the sets, I would sit and uh, read these books and try to learn how computer programming worked. So that, that's how I got started. And, and and how does that compare to, to jazz music or classical music? I mean, uh, learning programming uh, compared to learning learning music theory and so on? Yeah, I, I've always felt that it was very similar and that it, it used the same parts of the brain and it tapped into the same... Uh, reserves of passion and excitement that I had for composition um, or, you know, jazz improvisation because those, that's basically just real-time composition. So the, the concept behind, um, you know, jazz composition or, or, or any kind of composition is typically you, you have some flashes of creativity where you come up with some ideas. Now, once you have the ideas, you have a bunch of problems that you need to solve. And the problems are, how do you put these ideas together in a way that's compelling and that uh, flow from one to the next and fit together properly? So you can sort of get the idea that there are like components that have to fit together and there are rules for how they fit together. And depending on the sorts of rules you apply or abstractions you apply, uh, you will have different sounds and different effects. So, um, and, and even sort of lock yourself into different uh um, metaphorical rooms, you know, if you if you're not careful, where the composition goes a certain way and it can't go another way without being really strange. Um, so yeah, to me, it's it's almost exactly the same uh, uh, thought process, and and I I see them both as creativity and both as uh, craft and art. So those moments of of let's say deep flow right as, as dhh calls is typically then when you are really like in the tunnel um and i i can i can imagine how it is a bit because i learned piano in my in my uh, early 20s i think uh, and and it was also around like improvisation and i really found myself in like exactly the same um situation as when i when i when i try uh, or when i spent uh, the night with my computer and, 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 and solve problems, right? Um, yeah, it's interesting that you learned in your early 20s. That's an unusual time to pick up a, a musical instrument. So you're probably young enough to be able to learn quickly and old enough to be able to understand and uh, appreciate the process of learning and remember it. Yeah, but in a way, it felt like, like a bit late. Um, so uh -huh. I think like ideally you learn piano in your, in your very early days and like the, the, you really get that get to that level of, of flow very quickly um, uh, where you really improvise something. But I had a very good teacher who was really into improvisation and um, he was teaching me, um, let's say, easy easy blues uh, scales and so on. And that kind of felt very natural to, to just jam for, for, for hours. Mm. Um, and, and that is what I, what I really liked about it. Like the, the whole theoretical aspects or... Um, Let's say more 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 complex music theory. Uh, I really hated it, um, but but <laughs> yeah, that that just 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 playing and just just um, hearing that it 
it in a way sounds sounds nice if you if you uh, use the right scale and you use the right the right combinations is kind of a good thing. So I, I yeah. think like, for computers it was it, it was better for me because I, I started very early, um, and that in a way. So so in computers, do you like to uh, just play and improvise, or do you like to know the theory? I like I mean, to know you, the theory. How you are? Oh, you do. I okay. like I like to know the theory. It's. I think it's the difference is that I started with computers when I was was twelve years old, um, and first I played. Like I also got in it through into it through 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 uh, gaming, and then kind of was using a Windows computer, and then ended up with programming batch batch script uh, batch script like uh, like the early yeah. .bat <laughs> files and then like modified games a bit and so on and somehow went into programming and then went into the web at the early times and then ended up uh, like really using professionally using ruby and a lot of other languages um, they kind of developed naturally um, and i think that was 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 missing for me with music so um when did you, you know, start? What's, what's interesting uh, is, sorry, you're trying to ask me a question, but I'm going to uh, talk about something um, that I thought of as you were speaking. When I read The Pragmatic Programmer by Dave Thomas and Andy Hunt, one of the things they talk about in there, it was the first time I, I heard this phrase was programming by coincidence, which means I just do stuff until it works. And then, you know, it's sort of like a co coincidence that it works which is sort of how we all start. I think or, or a lot of us start when we get into new technologies, especially like, let me try something and see what happens. And, and eventually you realize I, I'm making things work, but I don't know how it works under the mm -hmm. covers. And therefore mm -hmm. I'm lacking some power. Uh, and they talk about programming by coincidence as if it's a bad thing that should be avoided, which sounds like it should when I describe it this way. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the failures that we have in music education is we don't let people start by programming by coincidence, you know, playing and just seeing what happens. Uh, and it sounds like that's what you were doing in your early 20s on the piano, in a sense, was like, I like to just play things and see how it sounds and then learn by playing, as opposed to stepping back and starting with all of the fundamentals. But I wonder if there is something to be said in software development for learning by uh, playing, and I don't mean playing Doom like I did. You know that was important for me because it caught me on fire and got me excited. But like, goof around with things and see what happens, and then get yourself into a situation where you need to know the theory, and therefore you're motivated to learn the theory, versus the other way around where you're sitting in a college or university not understanding why you're learning about you know different data structures or whatever because you've never needed to use them. Mm. But, but isn't it isn't it what is what is fascinating about computers that you can in a way learn by by just playing? I mean, not playing Doom, but but just just approaching it in a very playful way, and then somehow being sucked into it. And um, and uh, like at a certain moment, you just understand. You have that aha moment where you we say, okay, it's so easy. Um, this is how the theory works, and this is what is behind it. Um, mm -hmm. That's really. For me, it was was always uh, that way. Um, also, yeah, me too. And it's because we started on our own and we were playing with the computers, and then we started learning the theory, probably. But if you go to university, you know, as a, a first year student, they're not going to start you off trying to make you have fun goofing around and making mistakes. 
And it kind of seems like that would be a better way for everyone to start sort of like apply what would happen organically if you had stumbled into software development as a child, try yeah. to get you started that way as, you know, an older child or young, young adult. Uh, maybe we would have better software developers then. Maybe like potentially the more creative developers. Um, I mean, a university in Germany, you start with Java and, um, or typically that was the case mm. a few years ago, at least. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't end up nicely for a lot of people. <laughs> I think like you, you should have like the creative approach as well and learn the creative <laughs> approach as well. And but, but tell, tell me a bit more. So you, you started then after you studied music um, and then somehow stumbled into your first computer job or what, what, what happened? Oh yeah. A friend of mine named Walter, uh, he was also a saxophonist that played in the bands I was in. Like we were playing in soul bands in, in Memphis, Tennessee uh, he, honestly, he's the sort of person that just likes to have someone to ride in the car with or go to lunch with, you know? And, and, and uh, so he thought it would be more fun at his job if I worked there. So he applied for a job for me. And, uh, because he had recommended me, his boss just hired me without even interviewing me at the time. She said, Walter says you're good. So when can you start? Uh, and it was just a, a computer support job. You know, we were young. Uh, I guess I was 21 or so at the time when I got that job and it paid, you know, American minimum wage, which was aesthetically low at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and from there I just obsessed. So, you know, I was in that job and like you were talking about writing batch files and stuff like that. I did that. Uh, I got really into Perl, the programming language. Uh, and too. wrote some systems. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Flat file databases and so on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. CGI bin. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I was writing systems for, like, authentication and authorization uh, of the systems at the place where we worked, which I think were in production for, I don't know, like 10 or 15 years, which is sort of scary because it was literally my first programs. <laughs> like, I didn't even know how to format the files. No one told me you should and dent and you know yeah it was I, terrible I had exactly the same the same uh, path i went through <laughs> <laughs> and 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 then you suddenly were cto of six wonder kinder or yeah that's how it worked, yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh okay so <clears throat> um i met someone at uh, my workplace who you know i was doing support i was having to walk around and help people uh you know when they couldn't print and that sort of stuff. And I met this guy named Ken who uh, sat in some back room and you would call him if things were really bad because he had designed all the systems and networks and stuff. And, and the first day I met him, there was some sort of like disastrous outage uh, at work. So he came and helped. It was on a Sunday when I was working. And I said, how do you, how did, how did you learn to do all this stuff? And he said, come to my office on Monday uh, in the afternoon and I will start teaching you things. So he did. Uh, and he gave me a, a sort of like career progression that the nerd and me turned into something like a, a skill tree from a role-playing game. And it was, uh, you should learn three things. You should learn a programming language, some Unix operating system and some sort of directory service. Uh, and that was sort of a, a function of the time, you know, um, it was the 90s and people were adopting 
uh, <clears throat> Novell's NDS, uh, eventually Active Directory, LDAP, those sorts of structures. It was a big deal then. So I started learning those things very seriously, and I thought of them. I mean, it's, it's sort of like a coincidence that there are three paths there that are very different. And I thought of them like literally like a skill tree in a video game, you know, where you've got your three categories of skills and you're trying to work your way up. It gives you flexibility within those three. So I chose Linux, Perl, uh, and NDS, which was the Novell Directory Service, which led me to become uh, really expert in how hierarchical authentication authorization services worked, just because I was you know, so interested in it, uh, which led me to digging really deep into LDAP when that became a, a thing, the lightweight directory access protocol. Uh, and I started, you know, messing with like Netscape's implementation and open LDAP, whatever the, the original open source one was. Um, and all of these skills led to a real job because that was the, the, you know, minimum wage uh, young person job. And I ended up getting a job at FedEx, which is one of the biggest employers in Memphis. They're based there. And at that point, I think. I initially started out making more money than either of my parents. I was, I don't know, 22 years old uh, and never actually graduated from university. And that just started this, you know, the, the, <clears throat> the role-playing game sort of aspect to my career became something that I was very focused on, both from the perspective of constantly building skills. Like it was this really exciting environment to, to feel myself growing and getting better and smarter and all of the, the things I would learn would directly relate to like new things that I could do at work or even at home with my you know, nerdy Linux setup and all the stuff that I was doing, uh, that it, it really became a passion at that point. Uh, and um, I could never put it down. Yeah, I, I think like reading your, your CV uh, for the first time feels or, or, or it seems to me, or seemed to me, that you do not like to spend time in your comfort zone. Um, is is that true? Mm -hmm. So you have that constant learning, and is it? I guess it's also like a playful approach to constantly learning, constantly getting better, and uh, like from being a programmer, uh, becoming a, a manager potentially, and then a CTO, and so on. Um, yeah. Is that true, or is there yeah, like a, yeah, that's, an alarm that that is ringing whenever you you are in your comfort zone, or what what happens? Yes, yeah. So uh, anecdotally, uh, I I went from FedEx to uh, General Electric, and um, at General Electric, I was quite successful. Uh, you know, still very early in my career, still in my twenties, I got to the point where I was CTO of a, a GE business and. And I found myself getting comfortable. And that's why I mentioned this. Um, I sort of tricked myself into saying like, well, I can work here forever because I can just go from business to business. It's such a large company, you know, and I lived in India for a while when I worked there. And uh, a friend of mine from the Ruby community, a very early Ruby community, like 12 people in Ruby IRC at the time. One of them was Mats, the creator of Ruby. Uh, I was talking to him about it. David Allen Black is his name. Um, he's a fairly well-known author and software developer there. Uh, and I was trying to decide, should I leave? Because I had this opportunity to go work at this, you know, sort of large, well-funded startup uh, in town where I lived at the time in Kentucky. And he asked me the question, is it your destiny to work at General Electric? 
and when he asked that, I said, oh, God, no, never, definitely not. And, and that sort of changed my thinking about career path from then on. Because at the time, I was really on, on track to try to become CIO of a GE business and eventually like a, a full-fledged vice president at one of the largest corporations in the world, you know. Uh, and oh, what a dreadfully sad thing that would have been for me. It's not. It's not how I thrive. Yeah, wearing a tie and so on, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but 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 how did you become a manager then? Um, oh well, that was at GE, um, and it was a comfort zone thing, I guess. You know, um, I uh, the the team that I joined there was part of IT, but it was like the people doing all the new stuff. Um, we were at GE Appliances, so one of the divisions of GE. But I think we were the first team to do e-commerce at GE. Um, and we also like set up new application infrastructure. So it was the early days of Java enterprise development. It was before the servlet spec was something people used uh, before you know EJBs and all that. So we set up all the first app servers. And, and basically, I was there from the very beginning. And I built up, uh, along with a couple of other people, the, the whole infrastructure and environment for hundreds of developers to build on to create you know, modern applications that were not on the ma mainframe and not client server. And uh, I've always been a good communicator, which I guess led to people just naturally coming to me to, to find out what was going on and to hear ideas about, I don't know, the future of the internet. Uh, and, and how GE should be approaching it. And that's when they asked me to be a manager. And I remember it because that at the time, for a long time, was my favorite team I'd ever been on. And they asked me to be manager of that team. And when I became manager, suddenly uh, I didn't have any friends because the, the people that were on that team were my friends and now I'm their boss. And it's not like they, you know, intentionally shunned me, but I got that the first taste of the loneliness of, of management and leadership from that experience. I remember the first day they all went out to lunch and didn't ask me. They walked by and they went out to lunch. And I was like, oh, it was, and it might have been like the first week that I became a manager. Uh, and so that started my love-hate relationship with management too which leans honestly very heavily to hate uh, for myself. I don't like being a manager at all, but I, I've done it many times um, over my career. And usually because I end up building something and then, you know, again, the curse of being, I know, outgoing and ability uh, and able to communicate well leads to people asking me. And then the combination of my desire to help my company succeed wherever it may, may be and my ego of, you know, being proud to be asked and getting excited and doing it, uh, I just keep falling into it over and over again. Then eventually right. bail out and go do something else. I can imagine. Um, and and always having that superpower of being able to code is, is a very nice thing as a manager as well, right? Yeah. And if you become a manager that we're, where you're like a serious manager and you have to do it full time, there's a, there's a clock that's ticking. Uh, like the first time I remember it happening, I was a living social. Uh, I was SVP of technology for two years and that was a big management job. And I, that was maybe the time when I, I really figured out uh, you can't be a programmer and be a manager if you've got a large enough team. 
you know, because the job is too much. And if you try to be a programmer, you're being selfish. So two years went by where I didn't program anything for work, except for a couple of failed attempts where I just, you know, I was too distracted by my day job and uh, I ended up making mistakes. Um, one really embarrassing one on Thanksgiving one year, maybe I can tell you about, but uh, that's when I ended up bailing out of that one um, to go be CTO for Zex Wunderkinder because I just, I had to get back, back hands, hands on with technology and it, I could feel it slipping away from me. Uh, and I do feel like as I age, it's harder and harder to, to imagine being able to re-immerse myself and relearn all the new stuff, you know? Mm. So like mm. I went from a time when almost no one was doing cloud computing to everyone was doing cloud computing. That, that was the time that I wasn't doing hands-on tech. And there was so much to learn. It was terrifying. Um, but yeah, you're right that, you know, it's a superpower to know how technology works in a really visceral hands-on way when you're dealing with technologists as a manager. And, and you learned Ruby at Six Wonderkinder or, or where? Oh, no, no. Um, so, so Six Wonderkinder I joined in 2013. I learned Ruby starting in 2000. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, that's very early, yeah. Yeah, I remember being excited when the book Programming Ruby came out because I was already using Ruby and I wanted a book about how to how to program in it. So, you know, that was very, very early. And that was the same time when your job went to India, literally. Yes. Yeah, right around then. So I was playing around with Ruby a lot and when I lived in India. And, and actually, the Ruby IRC channel was a big uh, connection for me back to... Uh, the states and you know the sort of culture that I recognized. Okay, so um, you moved from from DC to India to to Berlin. How do the cultures uh, compare? No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, I I grew up in Arkansas, and that's where I am now. And in the states, Arkansas is in the south central. Uh, it's a place with a beautiful environment and very very ugly politics um, and you know, one of those that's always very low on the list of uh, best educated states in the country. So basically, Arkansas sucks, and it's got its own culture. Uh, it's ignorant and, and embarrassing. Uh, and then I went to Memphis, where I did the music stuff. And that was, you know, sort of like Southern soul culture that I was mostly immersed in. Then I went to Kentucky, then I went to India, then back, then Colorado, then DC, then Berlin. Uh, and yes, it was, you know, the cultures, uh, are almost not comparable. Although I would say that the one thing I've noticed as I've traveled is, uh, culture changes as you move toward the equator. So, uh, you know, South India has a lot of the same sort of properties as the Southern United States, uh, relative to North India, that sort of thing. Um, it's kind of hard to, to compare them, although I will say that the Indian culture and the shock uh, of being there as an American who was fairly insulated as a child um, was the most impactful thing that happened to me in my life in terms of understanding the world and, and developing my career and you know, pretty much anything else uh, because it was so different. It was the first time that I was clearly a you know a person in the ethnic minority, like everywhere I go, people look at me and point and follow me around, you know, um, that sort of thing. Um, I learned 
to speak a couple of Indian languages, and I studied uh, an Indian musical instrument uh, called the veena while I was there um, with a person who didn't speak English, you know, in a, in a place where they weren't used to seeing foreigners come in. And so I really took the opportunity to immerse myself in India and learning everything I could about Indian culture and putting myself again in very uncomfortable situations as often as possible. Um, you know, like walking around in villages where they had never seen foreigners, but I could speak to people because I had learned Hindi. Um, you know, so yeah, it, a very impactful thing that everyone should try to do if they get a chance, uh, not necessarily India, but, you know, move to a place where the culture is different, the language is different, you look different and and see what it takes um, or what it does to your your mind and your brain. And, and in India, was, was there like, like a very spiritual moment or something where you decided, okay, I have to like become more of a hands-on guy again and, and, and move to Berlin and, uh, and, and <laughs> apply it at, 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 for a job at Six Wonder Kid? Or what, what was that like the, when the key moment to, to move away? Well, with, so the timing there was uh, I was in India and I was um, – setting up a software center. This was for GE at the time and totally hands off tech again. So when I moved back, uh, I went, I was still at GE and I did go for an absolutely hands-on job, like totally different thing. And it was a situation where we had this crazy legacy system that was built in C running on HPUX and, uh, talking to the Mobitex radio frequency network and the person who created the system and had maintained it for decades left sort of suddenly. So I was on the track to be a, like a large team manager when I got back on the executive path. But at the division where I was, I was one of the only people they could imagine could figure out the system after this guy left. So instead of joining boardrooms and, you know, being a fancy manager at a large corporation, I spent many nights, me and one other guy, his name was Anurban, all night in the office, like running S-Trace on processes on a Linux machine, trying to reverse engineer protocols because we couldn't understand the code the guy wrote and that sort of thing. So just this weird ping-ponging back from set up software development business from the ground and hire everyone and put processes into place to going back to the States and sitting in a cubicle all night, hacking and, and troubleshooting. Um, and I apologize. I mean, I guess you started this the wrong way with me. You said crazy birds. So I'm just in crazy bird mode, but the timeline of my career is so screwy too. You know, it's, there are so many turn, twists and turns. It's sort of hard, hard to follow the, uh, the path without making it really boring, I guess. <laughs> so. and, and, and you see you seem to be somehow attracted by um let's say languages that become very popular before they are popular right i mean ruby uh, that was like very very early for ruby and it was kind of very unpopular and very strange to do it um until until dhh yeah. came up with that crazy framework um and and i also saw that you you're into alexia as well um which is like i i remember like a a moment when I was chatting to a guy in Berlin like a few years ago, and he said, "Yeah, uh, we have to ha find find a CTO who's able to 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 maintain our Alexia application because the only guy 
it was able uh, to do it just left uh, and it was in a way the same with ruby and uh, with with alexia now so what is the next the next crazy technical thing that you you're going to discover and and going to follow mm, i don't know and i i don't think i'm into technologies that happen to uh, that take off it's not like i can predict it it's more that i'm into fringy technologies and sometimes they do take off uh, so, you know, like Ruby people laughed, literally laughed when I talked about it at work because they just thought I was crazy for wasting my time with it. Uh, and it did pay off for me ultimately. I mean, Ruby is a great language and I loved it and it didn't matter if it was going to pay off, but you can sort of think of technology investment, uh, at, you know, when it comes to your own personal investments that you make as the, the same way that you would, uh, financial investment. So right now, if you want a conservative investment, <clears throat> then, you know, learn Python or something like that, or even Java, because you can do Android apps and, you know, backend apps. Uh, there will be a return on the, that investment. You'll be able to use the, the language and, you know, make stuff and get a job. But the return is going to be small because that's it. There, it's, there's too much competition. You know, it's too large. It's like late stage. If you were to invest in something like, I don't know, Rust, that's that's not even new, but it still hasn't taken off. If you were to invest in that, you could become someone who is noteworthy in the Rust community. You might even be able to fill in a gap that you know hasn't been filled already. And then if Rust gets big, you are an expert and maybe you have a name in that community and you leverage that to you know, to get uh, new opportunities. So that's sort of what happened with Ruby, although I would be rewriting history if I said I was really intelligent and I decided to make a bet in this little fringe language and I knew it was going to be you know, huge. That's not the case. I never expected anyone to be into it. Uh, and I actually was sort of following around these fringe languages and like my other hobby at the time in the early 2000s was learning about obfuscated programming languages. So just, you know, the ones that are the craziest, like, like white, white space and white space. <laughs> yeah. Malbolge. And, you know, I love that sort of stuff. Obviously that's never going to take off, but I did it for my own benefit and creativity and fun. And, it, it also doesn't fit to the, to the tweet that you, you stick to your Twitter profile. The older I get, the more I realize the biggest problem to solve in tech is to get people to stop making things harder than they have to be. <laughs> it <laughs> doesn't really fit well together with, with Rust and, and Whitespace and so on, right? Well, I think it does um, because, you know, the tweet is talking about building solutions. Uh, and I have an old post that I wrote in the year 2001, actually, which was called Valueless Software. And you probably can't find it because I've destroyed my blog now. But um, the idea was that as a musician, um, when you practice, if it sounds good, you're probably not actually practicing. You're playing. And musicians don't show up at a gig and perform something they don't know. They sit at home and they go through the pain of doing something and learning, you know, and most of the stuff that you do at home is not something you would ever give to someone to listen to. So you play scales and intervals and long tones where you just hold them for a long time. The things, the output of the music you're making at home has no value. It's the practice that's the value, right? And so I think stuff like messing with Malbulge and, and Whitespace and all those, that's practice where you're not going to do it to try to build something of value. 
Because if you try to build something of value, you get distracted from the learning process and from the self-development process. Um, that said, I don't put rust in that, that category. Rust is um, difficult because you don't know it already. Same with Haskell. And because it is sufficiently different from what most of us do that we have to think harder to, to learn it. And it's too much trouble for most people, right? So I think Rust uh, fits very well into the spirit of that tweet of not trying to make things harder than they need to be because Rust solves some problems in a specific context that actually makes it easier to solve the problems. You know, if you try building systems in C where you've got all these memory issues, why do that now when you don't have to? Using C would be making things harder than they need to be. Using Rust, if you can get over the laziness of not wanting to learn new concepts, makes it easier. Makes sense. Makes sense. I guess that every of my listener CTOs out there knows this challenge. Traditional content management systems where front-end and back-end are tightly coupled make it difficult to reuse content in different digital channels. The next generation of headless CMS is much more flexible for developers but comes with strong constraints for editors. The goal of Storyblock is building the world's first headless CMS that works for both developers and business users. Storyblock offers a combination of visual editing tools and highly customizable content blocks. This is built on modern headless architecture that gives developers the flexibility to build fast and reliable digital platforms. The big benefit of headless CMSs is that content can be streamed to any platform via API without having to manage the content multiple times. For example, customers use Storyblock for their websites, online stores, apps, or send the same content to Twitter, WeChat, or to Alexa skills. Storyblock is now used by over 50,000 developers, product owners, and managers in over 80,000 projects in 130 countries. Customers include Adidas, Marley Spoon, Deliveroo, and many, many more. If you want to know more, please visit storyblock.com slash OMR. That's storyblock.com slash OMR. And then stepping back to Six Wonder Kinder, um, you were using, you were applying mostly Ruby and like really became like a, like a startup CTO. And I guess it was a crazy growth story as well, right? Where you, you were applying Ruby there. You were using Ruby there, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. In fact, it was more like we were recovering from Ruby there. Um, so I was, I was sought out by them and hired because I was known as a Ruby expert. Um, which is a whole sort of funny thing because why no one had proof that I was a Ruby expert, but I'd just been doing it loud about it, you know? So, uh, I went there and I think within the first week I started talking about rewriting some systems in other languages like Scala and that sort of thing. Um, and by the time we were done with Wonderless, when we sold it, uh, the back end had, I don't know, 12 different languages or something crazy like that. Oh, we moved, <laughs> moved to this really intense microservices architecture. And for me, it was that system that I was most passionate about and less about which languages you used. Um, and in fact, it was by design, you could pretty much use any language you wanted as long as it fit within certain rules that we, we set up, for example, worked with our build system, that kind of thing. Um, but the growth story, yes, when I, when I joined, 
they had just launched Wonderlist 2, which was the, the first big rewrite they did. And on the day that they launched it, uh, I think it was up for less than 10 seconds before it crashed. And then it was down for two weeks or something because it could not handle the scale. Uh, we, they had built it. They had built this monolithic Ruby on Rails API system. Uh, they had built a synchronization system that didn't work and was never going to work. There was no way. But we had millions of users on it and we were stuck. So that's that's what I immediately did was start the bailout process with the team and start building up processes and, and uh, skills around dealing with fragile systems um, and start pulling apart the monolith, which we did for a couple of years. And, and, and would you do it again in the same style? I mean, you in a way had like a zoo of languages and um, like really microservice uh, infrastructure. Um, like, how do you feel about this today? I still love it. Uh, however, I love it and believe that if you just start with Erlang, then maybe you don't need to do any of that. Uh, so I love it for a couple of different reasons. One is um, the distributed nature of the system allows you to deal with scalability in a more granular way. So, um, you know, we've all, all, all of us who've been CTOs especially have the experience where you have a monolithic system where one thing is slow and it slows everything down and the whole thing crashes and nothing works because the one thing was slow. In the, the way that we built our microservice architecture, if one thing went down, only the one thing was down. So, you know, like maybe the comments service, we screwed that up. So you can do everything else. You just can't make comments on tasks. So, you know, that's not good, but much better than full, full failure because it means some things can still be done. That I still loved. Uh, the other reason that I love it, though, is I like the ability to express things in different languages. And I like the freedom to do that. And I like my entire team to feel that freedom. Because I came from the, the cubicle world of people sitting around complaining about uh, conservative choices by management and wishing you could use this or that technology and then like applying for jobs at other places because you want to go use a technology you're passionate about. We didn't have that problem. Uh, you know, one of the most junior people on the team actually it, um, suggested that we start doing stuff in Elixir in the year 2014, I guess, early 2014. And I said, sure, you know what the rules are. You can do it. You need one other person to do it with you. You need to you know, make it work with the build system, testing system, monitoring, the various things that we were using to make the system work. And he said, cool. And then a year and a half went by and he still didn't do it because he knew that was a big responsibility and he didn't have time to do it. He was never frustrated with me and never frustrated with the environment. He had the flexibility and he understood the reason for the rules and he could introduce it responsibly when he finally wanted to. And he did and, and, you know, enjoyed it and everyone was happy with the choice. So the ability to, to work with different languages and like, I, I love what it does to my brain. Um, personally, I loved going from like closure to Scala to Haskell to Ruby to go, et cetera, in one day as part of my job. I, I felt like it built 
new muscles, you know, metaphorically speaking, of dealing with abstraction in a different way. Um, like I've been doing a bunch of Haskell. We had a couple of Haskell services. Uh, and then someone introduced Clojure, and I didn't know Clojure, and I didn't really want to learn it that much um, just because I was busy doing other stuff. The first day I sat down and tried to do Clojure seriously, I remember the moment thinking, well, what would I do in Haskell? Uh, and sort of just having this intuition for good closure design. Um, and my intuition ended up being correct. Even the terms that I was looking for were correct. And I could navigate the APIs and then put together a really nice, elegant, functional thing in closure, which was a language I barely knew at the time, you know, functional JVM based Lisp. Um, and I don't know, I just experienced great joy from that. So you can't replicate that with Erlang and Elixir. But the first part you can, you can make really great distributed systems that are fault tolerant and, you know, have all these amazing properties of like supervision trees and stuff. And all the, the infrastructure we had to build around microservices was a waste if you look at what Erlang already provides and especially the Elixir ecosystem, because that's like nice syntax and tooling on top of the existing Erlang ecosystem. But you would still miss the fun of, Let's do Rust, you know, let's do Haskell, let's do, I don't know, Pure Script or Closure Script or whatever. Uh, it was wonderful to be able to experiment like that. And, you know, there were times where um, one of the rules that we had was if you introduce a new service, it has to be this big. And I would hold up my fingers, you know, like you, the whole thing should basically fit on the screen when you, when you use a new language. Because... If it fails in the middle of the night and the person on call doesn't know that language yet, they can just rewrite it in a language they know and deploy it. And we, we actually did that in some cases where we had problems and we just say, okay, rather than trouble, troubleshoot this thing, we'll just rewrite it in something we know and go ahead and deploy it right now and then revisit it later. Okay. Uh, but um, what, I, what, I, what I'm still missing in your, in your career progression is, there was a moment when you again stepped away from programming, right? You you integrated Six Wonderkinder into Microsoft, and you were acquired yeah, by Microsoft, okay. and then you went again, um, like into into your <laughs> into your love hate relationship with, with in, management in, yeah. into my unhappy place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Um, yeah, because one of the things I can do. So, you know, I mentioned being able to communicate well, and, and I said that from the perspective of being a programmer who can talk to management or, you know, I don't know, business people, whatever that means. Uh, but the other thing that I'm unfortunately pretty good at is making compromises and dealing with uh, bureaucracy, I guess. So in the context of a startup getting acquired, it sort of didn't make sense for Christian Raber, who was the founder of Wonderlist, to lead the team in the context of Microsoft because there was a huge culture mismatch there between, you know, and, and I say that in the best possible way about Christian. Um, he needs to be innovating. He needs to be in charge and making things his way with no compromise. Hmm. When you get acquired and you go to a company like Microsoft, you don't do that. It doesn't work. Uh, never will. Doesn't matter what the company is, what the intent is on both sides, it's not going to work. And so I ended up taking over leading the Wonderlist team after we were acquired. Uh, and I did that for, I don't know, a year and a half or so uh, until I had to move to the US for family reasons. And yeah, I ended up in all sorts of 
totally non-technical jobs at Microsoft, uh, you know, like leading the, the team that deals with startups and the startup ecosystem, you know, there are accelerators around the world and all that, um, which was absolutely a business job, not even anything technology related in it, honestly. Uh, and uh, another thing was leading a large part of the developer relations team from Microsoft, the cloud advocates. So a lot of the people that you hear about, you know, in open source communities that work at Microsoft were on my team at the time. Okay, interesting. Um, but like from the outside perspective, it could look like uh, the acquisition of Wunderlist for Microsoft was, wasn't the most successful acquisition because they, in a way, discontinued the product and so on. Mm -hmm. um, is that, that the case? And, and why is that? Uh, no. So, I mean, you could say, sure, you can have an opinion that it was not a successful acquisition. But um, one thing that most people miss is that though the Wonderless brand went away, there was a thing called Microsoft To Do, which is available on all platforms um, and synchronizes with Exchange as the backend instead of the custom backend that we had built at Wonderlist. But the code inside of Microsoft To Do is actually Wonderlist. So, you know, if the thing that we had launched when we were acquired was Wonderlist 3, Microsoft To Do is Wonderlist 4 with a new name. Okay. Uh, and it still exists and people use it. And, you know, the beauty of running with Exchange as a, as a background, uh, a backend is we got all of the compliance um, features of Exchange, whether it be disaster recovery or privacy or, you know, uh, like really deep enterprise level stuff you need to run in banks, corporations, governments, education, et cetera. Just got it for free by running on Exchange. Um, some people don't like Microsoft to do from a UX perspective, but that's just subjective now, you know. Mm -hmm. Understood. And, and in your different Microsoft positions, did you learn anything you would apply at a startup job these days? Um, like in terms of management skills, I don't know if you were using OKRs or anything. Um, anything you would you would recommend of, of adopting uh, from from the enterprise world or? Well, no. Uh, we did in, we did introduce OKRs, and uh, I. When we did it, you know, it was one of those top-down things, as it tends to be. Uh, I was very skeptical. So I said, I'm not going to do this unless I can learn a lot about it and really believe in it. So I read a book. That I can't remember what it's called, but it's the one everyone said is the main one you want to read. Uh, and then I, I studied everything I could, listened to podcasts and you know, videos, et cetera, and I thought deeply about how to apply OKRs and make it not be bullshit. Uh, and all of the things that I expected to happen with OKRs happen with OKRs. It is bullshit. Uh, it, the idea is not, but the implementation is and always will be in a large company. Um, so what I learned is more of a confirmation that um, this is one of those things sort of like Six Sigma that is over-engineered um, and uh, the approach people will take will always pretty much be wrong because it's too rigid. And I learned that if I'm at a startup and someone brings it up, if it's a company under 30 people, I will tell them they're crazy. We can't do that. It's a waste of time. Uh, but I have confirmation bias for sure, because mm -hmm. my, my bias coming into especially startups when it comes to organization is 
to resist all process until it is required to uh, fix a problem. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, any named process at an early stage in the, in a startup is just a disaster waiting to happen. Like, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's a named methodology or I don't know if they say you're going to have a scrum meeting, then that needs to be destroyed as early as possible. If you start <laughs> join the startup, because that's garbage too. It's just, uh, you know, whenever you name something, it gives someone an excuse to, to feel good that they've implemented something because they, they implemented something with a name uh, and the name ends up being a proxy for progress. Sort of like uh, when people really started getting into the watered down agile thing, you know, after agile lost its meaning, people would talk about velocity and story points and how many points they completed and get really focused on that. Uh, but that's meaningless. You know, even, you know, the early agile people would talk about story points and say, you could call it jelly beans. It doesn't represent anything. It's just this sort of like high level thing that gives you some sense of a velocity. And if you start focusing on that velocity, you can accomplish nothing, certainly nothing of value to the business and feel great because the number is going up. I've seen that over and over again, too. Uh, so totally not answering your question, crazy bird style, I guess. But uh, I guess it just reaffirmed my beliefs that process uh, is is of the devil when you're at a startup. Uh, and you need to focus on solving problems and never focus on ceremony until it's absolutely necessary. Well, I would, I, yeah, I accept your opinion. Um, I'm also not an OKR fan. Uh, what what I think is, is good about the way that 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 Agile went and how how pop, popular Agile processes became and Scrum and and, and Kanban. Um, the the positive side is that you you can like distill out a few elements um, of Scrum, like a daily stand up. Absolutely makes yeah. sense from my perspective. It's like the most valuable thing that that I've I've learned in the last twenty years. <laughs> right, and because it solves and, a problem. It solves a problem. Um, yeah. And um, as long as you don't focus on the process itself, um, it, it's valuable. And the good thing about it is, like, if you talk these days about Kanban or Scrum, most people actually know what it's about. And I think that's like the difference between, let's say, in, in the modern startup world, um, just saying, yeah, we're doing like some sort of management by objectives or we're doing OKRs, people know what mm-hmm. you're talking about, right? The people have something something on their mind, might be good, might be might be bad, but at least they know what you're talking about. Um, and that can be like the positive thing. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, it's yeah, like design patterns. Yeah, it's, it's like design patterns, right? Um, right. Why did, you, why did they make design patterns? Because they wanted names for things that already existed so that there could be shorthand vocabulary for it. The problem with it is, and it's also true in design patterns, as soon as you learn the thing wrong, then that's what's stuck in your head, and that's the thing you recognize. So when I say OKR to most people who've ever participated in, in a company that use them, they have a bad, ineffective, ver- ineffective version of that methodology in their heads, and that's what they're going to go do. Um, the best ones will probably be disgusted when you say it, so you know you can also turn them off. But I, I think that's the case with Scrum, like. Say the word, if you're there, fine, because you can say, we're going to do something like Scrum, 
but we're going to do it this way, you know. Whereas if you go to a company where they say, we're going to do Scrum, then probably they're just doing some really ineffective, slow bureaucratic process that is anti-agile. And they're going to have a, a daily stand-up that lasts an hour and, you know, and isn't a stand-up. Uh, and they're going to waste a bunch of time implementing process and feeling like they're doing the right thing. And no one's going to like it. No one's going to be excited about doing their scrum junk or their OKRs or whatever. So like, I totally agree that you get this, uh, this sort of like named structured thing that comes together in a block and it has a name like OKR or scrum or whatever. Um, and it's a good way to get started. And the, the thoughts behind all of these are really good. Even Six Sigma, you know, like I was a Six Sigma black belt at GE, which is embarrassing and kind of cool. Um, but when you implement them, they get confused and screwed up. So what I would do is say, use them as inspiration and then take the things that you know solve problems like a daily standup. And the nice thing is you can read about what a standup is supposed to run like if you read one of the original Scrum papers or books and then implement it that way instead of the way everyone else does when they say Scrum. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, that's why I like to throw away the words. See it, see yeah, it as exactly. a toolbox then, instead yeah, of exactly. seeing it as a, as, a, as a thing you have to implement exactly how it was meant to be. Um, yeah, that's also how I see, how I think about OKR. So I hated it as well, or hated them as well after, after yeah. seeing it as a Lando. Um, I hated it absolutely, but but now I, I, I it comes back and I, I think okay if I see it as a toolbox, kind of be good. Um, and I think it can be good. Um, but I don't I know. Bet yet. It is if you're there <laughs> doing it. That's that's the thing. If yeah. you trust the people who are rolling it out, then it's probably okay. But if they take their eyes off of it at any point or they leave or something, then it will turn into the watered down garbage version of the process. If you could give give us three key learnings from your different perspective on engineering from startup to enterprise, uh, what would you pass to our listeners? Which learnings? Oh, <laughs> it's hard, <laughs> right? Know. Let's see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, had I spent some time thinking about it, it wouldn't be hard. Um, I, I guess one of them is, uh, I don't know what the other two will be, but... One of them is my, do you want to interject something? No, I just said, I just want to say one is okay if, <laughs> if it's good. So there, there, there no could even be five. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there'll, there'll be more than one, I promise, because this one's not good enough. Uh, and the, the one I would say first is that uh, small, um, uh, keeping things small where possible is a way to, increased chances of success. Uh, and, and the way I think when it comes to management or product design or architecture or software, you know, hands-on programming is pretty much the same. I blend all these concepts together. And so uh, small teams are proven to be more effective than large teams. That's an example. Uh, small pieces of software are much easier to maintain than large pieces of software. Small databases are easier to scale and deal with than large databases. Uh, and you can, apply, you can take this lens and look at almost everything and, uh, and discover that, yes, smaller is better. Of course, you know, the, the entirety of what you build can't necessarily always be tiny. 
because uh, you're trying to do something of consequence. So then you think, well, why are smaller things better and easier to maintain? And that leads you to understanding um, encapsulation and decoupling and, and all these sorts of concepts in the context of a larger system. Um, so whether it's management and, and like team organization or system design, I always take that view. Things need to be small and decoupled uh, because that allows them to change. And, and things need to be, be able to change, whether it's software that needs to be change, changeable or organizations or mindsets or whatever. Maybe that's one reason I hate things like Scrum and OKRs because it creates a large framework that ends up being monolithic because it has a name. But you need to have components that can be destroyed and replaced, just like those systems I was talking about at Wonderlist, where, okay, we can't get the Go service to scale, so we're going to rewrite it in Closure tonight so we can go to bed because it's small enough to do that and it's decoupled and the interface is clear enough that you can do that. Did that make sense for, for one? Absolutely, uh, that makes sense, yeah. Another one? Oh, uh, you don't the have next to one, one is... I think the first one was great already. <laughs> no, there's another one. You have to find a way to do things that are fun. Uh, your, your job has to be fun. And if you're a manager, your team's job has to be fun. And it doesn't mean that the everyone has to be excited about what the business does. You know, sometimes you're going to be on some IT team doing something boring that, you know, where you don't care about the outcome. Maybe you're not into, I don't know, manufacturing systems, but there's something cool about building the thing that helps to automate it. Uh, so for me, like as a, as a human, and maybe this is part of what you saw trying to decode what the hell I was doing with my CV is, if I can't see how the thing I'm doing is fun, then I have to find something new. And fun can mean a lot of different things for me. Um, also applies to what I was talking about in the beginning um, with like you were learning piano and how you didn't want to learn theory. Um, part of the reason I think maybe we'd have more better software developers if you start with programming by coincidence and goofing around and playing is that you will find the fun and the energy and the excitement in the thing. And then you can do all the boring stuff around it, you know, paying your dues, learning the theory that maybe is, you know, parts of it aren't the most exciting to you because you understand the desire. I think it's very important, though, that you have that moment when you jump from pro programming by coincidence to, to really knowing what you're doing, right? Um, I mean, sometimes you also find, I sometimes see developers that never adopt the theory, uh, but always like let's say experiment with Node.js and, and TypeScript and, and JavaScript a bit without understanding really type safety and so on. Um, and yeah. Yeah, it ends yeah, up really badly, all, right? When, when Rails came on the scene, us old Rubyists used to laugh about how Rails people would come say, uh, do I need to learn Ruby to do this? You know, because Rails presented something where you could be really productive and crank out new sites, you know, in a way that wasn't really possible before. And so it attracted people who just wanted to play and do things by coincidence. And, and you know, they didn't understand, I don't know, metaprogramming or the typing system in Ruby. Uh, it, it always seemed funny. But that's why I talk about how I, in this context, and I know we're sort of going off topic, if fun and this approach were introduced in a formal education system, then you could build the entire curriculum around that with you know, the understanding that theory needs to be introduced at the right points. And by the end, you need a holistic view. But you're starting from 
uh, a perspective that motivates the learner in a way that starting with theory does not. In the same way that if I say, hey, you want to learn electric guitar so you can play some rock music? Let's talk about the, uh, the physics of vibration and how that makes different notes for a month. You know, <laughs> you're like, damn it, I just wanted to make some rock music, you know. Uh, so I, I think people forget this and, and especially in their careers, they forget it. But managers really forget it, too, that if if there isn't some way to create some uh, excitement and fun around the thing that people are doing, they're not going to do it as well. It's not that they're less capable of doing it. It's that like, well, ultimately they will be, because I know when I'm not enjoying myself, if it goes on and on and on, eventually I'm just terrible at the thing I'm doing. I'm not a good programmer or manager or whatever if I don't have fun every day. If I do, I'm thinking about it all the time and I'm excited and creative. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's, that's critical, even though it kind of sounds um, like a superficial desire. Yeah, but those moments, uh, like in the morning for me under the shower, it's very important to to, to have those aha moments, uh, and that only comes if you have fun at work, right? Um, absolutely. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to be thinking about something else. You'll you'll be in the shower dreading going to work instead of excited about what problem you're going to solve that day. So um, you're a very technical person. Um, is there any like? Like I'm the kind of guy who always discovers tools um, and 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 annoys everyone with with those. Is there anything you'd recently discovered, like a tool, a programming language, something technical that you would that you right now annoy all your friends with? Oh, sort of, although it's different. It's uh, for the last few years in my side work and and now with blue yard more uh dedicated i have spent a lot of time with the decentralized web technologies you know all the like post blockchain stuff and um this is an interesting one because people who maybe even who i've known for years will like talk about me like i've joined a cult if i even just reference any of these technologies so it's just such a divisive thing right now But there's so much cool stuff going on there and cool stuff to learn that if you can divorce yourself from the uh, distaste for the tech bro uh, day trader kind of culture that superficially exists in that world, there are just amazing things happening, whether it be, you know, different approaches to decentralized systems and or distributed systems and consensus uh, to different um, sort of fundamental understandings of how data should be shared and stored, uh, even how identity is propagated. Like, you know, a lot of the apps that I use now on the websites I use, I authenticate with MetaMask. And so I'm in my browser and basically they are mainstreaming um, public key encryption. So, you know, these are really good, cool things. And there's just, there's so much to learn there and it's so foreign. It sort of takes steps into cryptography, which most of us don't have a need or uh, often desire to dig too deeply into in our normal software developer careers. Um, and I think a lot of what's happening now, if you look at the landscape, you look at like NFTs and you know, these ridiculously expensive JPEGs, you can look at it and just blow it off and say, this is garbage. 
but there are fundamentals that are being built that are thrilling and absolutely like mind bending. And that's what I, I get excited about now, but I don't annoy my friends with it so much because they're so uninterested that I can't even start. <laughs> so, so you enter, it's, it's hard to really understand what is happening in that world if you never touch it as a, as a, as a technical person, right? So you yes. enter Solidity and so on these days, um, or you would recommend looking at Solidity or Ethereum? Well, Solid Ethereum, yes. Solidity is not an interesting programming language at all. Uh, it is just the way that you do yeah. smart contracts. Yeah. It's like, but the concept behind smart contracts essentially is what you learn if you touch it. And if you yes. install with or the, the, the MetaMask um, extension on your web browser and so on, uh, that's really, is is a mind shift, right? You can then, yeah. there's like that aha moment when you, understand okay yeah i could build a company on it on, on behalf of it i could pay people with uh, in shares and uh, they could could we could have a contract there um, which which pays them automatically and so on that's it's really crazy huh? yeah and that's exciting and that's that's like the mainstream stuff you know like even dows decentralized autonomous organizations mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. that as a replacement for uh, anything from user groups to companies to governments you know like you can really think big and and bend your brain with this stuff uh but from a tech perspective because that's what you asked about like ethereum is uh a mainstream smart contract uh enabled blockchain that currently uses proof of work technologies as or for consensus so similar to bitcoin Uh, there's proof of stake, which is a different sort of consensus uh, mechanism that more chains are moving to, including Ethereum. But if you start looking at domain-specific blockchains and reading how those work, and one that we invested in with Blue Yard is called Filecoin. Um, this is many years ago. Uh, that one changed my understanding, or at least my belief about what might be possible with this whole realm of technology. And the reason is Filecoin, so uh, the sh like short version is Filecoin is a uh, distributed file sharing and serving technology. Um, that's probably not quite accurate, but close enough. You know? So it's a way of uh, decentralizing file sharing. And the consensus mechanisms, in the same way that proof of work with Bitcoin and, and Ethereum They drive this competition where miners are doing this incredibly inefficient thing. They're burning energy, but they're trying to like mine these, you know, generate these hashes. And the one that gets it first ends up being able to mine the block and then you know, or create the block and then therefore they get paid. Uh, Filecoin is the first um, project that I knew about that replaced that sort of consensus mechanism with something of value to the protocol itself. So they have proof of space time. And, and generally the idea is all of the incentives that people are competing to win on so that they can be rewarded in this coin are things that make file serving better. Either it makes it more redundant or faster or geolocal or more censorship resistant, et cetera. And the, the idea of being able to design this consensus mechanism and protocol Uh, in other domain-specific ways is exciting, very exciting, because I can imagine an internet that works better and even, you know, these things bleeding over into non-internet, like real-life stuff. I don't know. It, it just really 
opened my eyes uh, and opened my mind when I learned about it. It's still hard to to to, to see the real applications uh, in front of you um, straight away, right? Um, mm. But but yeah, it's, it's really I'm I'm like one hundred percent sure that this is the future. Uh, it's still again and again, like in a way, a bit of a brain fuck uh, whenever you. You look at it from an outside perspective, um, and then try to understand yeah. the, the concept. It's like Rust. It's like Rust and Haskell. There's too much to learn, so you might just think, "Well, that's too hard," you know. But once you learn the concepts, it's not that hard. And and we are in such early days. Uh, unfortunately, it could be like Linux on the desktop. You know, it has been the year of Linux on the desktop since 1996. Like you know, this is the year it hits. But the UX just sucks, you know, and it, like it attracts nerdy developers to make nerdy interfaces. So it never broke mm -hmm. out. Maybe that's where we're going to be with this Web3 stuff. I don't think so. But that's certainly where we are right now. It could also yeah. be like mobile, right? <laughs> so I remember yeah. my friends uh, who jumped early, jumped into mobile um, and it was never taking off. And uh, then you were always promising your, your friends yeah, a mobile will come at a certain time, just be patient and boom. <laughs> mm -hmm. Suddenly, suddenly it, it 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 all exploded, right? And and Linux on the desktop, I mean Android is quite popular, so <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's yeah, just but, not a desktop. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, you're right. Um coming to my, my closing question, which which is not so hard, um, no worries. Um if we had a time machine now and we could travel back to 2013, when you started as a CTO at Six Wonder Kinder, what would you whisper into your young self's ears? Mm. I guess I would just say it's going to be okay. Yes, <laughs> <Because> it is. <laughs> uh, but some days it didn't feel like it. You know, it was. Uh, it's been a long road, um, and and I've been very lucky. And I started out as a mostly white guy. You know, so. I have all the advantages of, of that. Uh, but I tend to throw myself into situations that emotionally hurt and are very stressful. Uh, and that's what I would tell myself. It's a, it'll be okay and it's worth it. I, I think what we did, like, we made some good choices and we made, we made some great software. Uh, and, and honestly, at Wonderlist, I built the, and it wasn't me, you know, but we built the system of my dreams. Uh, And I have almost no regrets about what we implemented technically. Like, I don't know if I've ever created something where at the end I say, this is great. I want to keep doing this. I want to keep doing stuff like this. You know, um, I probably would tell myself that, you know, that, that instinct you have that after an acquisition, you should leave that instinct is correct and you should go with it sooner. <laughs> uh, and, and, That goes with knowing oneself and feeling confident enough to to turn things down when they're offered. You know, I mentioned my my ego when I'm offered management jobs. I get excited. Uh, I ultimately left Microsoft not because the company was bad to me. You know, quite the contrary. It was for most people, I think, a wonderful place to work. But for me, I knew very early this was not a fit, and uh, I now I'm now finished with the segment of my career where I allow that nagging feeling to continue. I think that's what I would tell myself if there was anything to change that when it doesn't qu feel quite right, it's not. So 
don't stick with it. Work isn't supposed to feel that way. That's probably not useful for the listeners. I apologize, but you know, that's, is, that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Chad. Uh, it was really nice chatting to you and, and uh, yeah, um, blessed to have this conversation. Um, I hope we can, can have it again at a certain time. Yeah. Um, yeah. We will meet in person. It will be great. <laughs> yes. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Enjoy your day. You too.